Spotify. Hello. Thank you for choosing the Lackadaisical Libricularist Podcast. Without further delay, here is your host, Jordan Maywood. Hello! Welcome to the Libro Cube. My name is Jordan Maywood, and I am the Lackadaisical Libro Cuber. Today, my friends, is Book Bowen. As you can imagine, with books being one of my favorite things in this entire world, a book of Bo Wednesday episode of the Lackadaisical Libro Kibbergillus podcast is going to be one of my favorites. Something I like to say at the top of every show is that there will be spoilers. Folks, please, I do not censor myself what so fucking ever. As was evidenced right there with the word fuck. So, if I just said that, you can imagine, I'm not going to, you know, pussyfoot. around letting things leak about this book. So, take heed, please. Another thing I like to say is that if you like what you hear, the only payment I ask is a million (laughs) dollars. Oh, no. That is ridiculous. The only payment I ask is perhaps you pass the podcast on to a friend. Perhaps you rate, subscribe, and comment in iTunes as that is what helps others find the podcast. Hmm. Indeed a That will, of course, take us into our last piece of podcast-related business, which is today's sponsor, which is... Legend Dairy Farms. Once again, today's sponsor is... Legend... Dairy Farms. Thank you to them. Very much appreciated. Your milk is delicious. Mm. Today in this Book Wednesday episode, I have for you a book. (laughs) Uh, A book one of a series, or a saga, if you will. The book title is Legend. It is by Mr. David Gemmel. It was written in 1984 when I was three years old. So, did David Gemmel think that a three-year-old would read this book when he wrote it in 1984? Probably not. Did he contemplate the thought that someone who was three in 1984 in the year 2013 would then read his book and then talk about it on a podcast, even though the internet didn't even exist back then? Probably not. Probably not. So, uh, you know, that's a cool little thought. And this is a cool little book. So, there you go. Coincidence? Yes. I very, very much like this book. Uh, Unprofessional, as I do quite often in my reviews, is to give my rating right off the bat. The reason I do that is because if I don't, um, I forget sometimes. And that is embarrassing. So, you know, here it is. Five out of five. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is just sort of... uh, kind of classic fantasy novel at its goodest, and uh, very, very much like this, and I'm going to continue to read on in the saga. It is called the Drenay Saga, D-R-E-N-A-Y. Drenay? Yeah, sure. Drenay? Possibly. Series instead of saga? Yeah, that as well. You never know. Something that this series has done interestingly is that, at least from book one to book two, is none of the characters are the same 
so far. I'm about 160-odd pages into book two, and it's taking place 100 years after the events of this novel, which uh, I think is a very interesting way to do it. Keep it in the same world, but jump ahead. Gives it that sort of saga feel to it, a sort of grand-reaching scope of events. This book involves uh, a band of northern tribal warriors who are going to come on down and uh, invade the shit out of the southern lands. Southern lands that are known as Drenay. The Drenay lands. The Drenay heartland. So uh, this is something that's kind of been done in fantasy novels before, although I suppose at this time, it, in 1984 when this was written, it hadn't been done as much as it has been in the intervening years. Uh, and again, I, I kind of say this, I feel like I say this often, just because something's been done a whole bunch of times, if you are going to do it, and do it very, very well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily a good thing, it's just a thing. These northern tribesmen, in the form of their king, sort of leader, whose name is Ulrich, that's a, that's a good uh, uber bad guy's name, Ulrich, he has sort of throughout the years, eaten his way through all the smaller tribesmen and united them. And this is something that Southerners always seem to fear in fantasy novels, is the uniting of the northern tribes. Because uh, if it's just one tribe, you know, no big deal. But when they unite, as they have in this novel, their numbers are quite, quite strong. In this case, 500,000 of them, which... It's a friggin' lot of people to come invade your lands, especially when they're from the north and sort of barbarian-like. What is stopping them? Well, this is uh, one of the other sort of interesting things of fantasy novels. Quite often, geography will play a not too small role in a novel. In this case, in order for these folk to invade the hinterlands, uh, they have to pass through a city. A city that is located in a valley. A valley that, for some reason, apparently, there's no real way around, and the only way into their lands is through this valley and through this city. The city, which is, for the most part, a series of six giant-ass walls. So, it is, as far as spots on a globe that you can protect, very, very good and well set up. However, these people at the city, the city called Drostelnok, which sounds Klingon to me, are sort of become complacent and their army has sort of deteriorated and there's a small remaining fighting force of legionnaires who are sort of the backbone of the army, but uh, the remaining army has kind of faded away over the years. Meaning... It is going to be 500,000 northern tribesmen versus 10,000 of the Dross Delnok quote-unquote army that has to keep them from invading these lands. So that ain't good. Those are not good odds, as you can imagine. Uh, something this does very, very well, David Gemmel, this David Gemmel does very, very well, is uh, battles. And as you can imagine, as I have just sort of set this up, there's going to be quite a few battles going on. At least six, you know, one per wall, at least that. Uh, and I kind of think that's very, very important 
at least to me, if you are writing fantasy and your battle sequences, be they large in scope like this or sort of mono a mono, if they are not good, your novel will not be good. So practice, practice, practice at those. So uh, this is a novel in which the author has chosen to make it very, very difficult for himself, I imagine, in that uh, he's doing the old check-in with multiple people from time to time. So I always love it when authors do that, but I always think, God, that's got to be difficult because he's going to kind of have to know what everyone is doing at any given moment and then pop in back with them and know what's going on. So, uh, you know what? I just realized on that sort of thought, is it possible that when an author does that, they write the entire story from one of their character's point of view and then jump to another character and write their entire story and then sort of intermingle them? Yeah, that might be an easier way to do it. Anyways, the first character that we are introduced is in the form of a man by the name of Rek. R-E-K, which is a good, short, easy-to-remember fantasy name, which is what I love, because quite often they are not. He was an officer in an army, has since left said army, and has been traveling the world. We learn that he, he is scared. He is a scared. He has sort of a great fear permeating throughout him, fear of death, fear of battle. He's just a bit of a scaredy cat. Kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of. Now, we should specify that despite all this fear that is shaking him quite often to his very bones, and I mean literally sometimes giving him the shakes, he will uh, do what needs to be done. So, uh, it reminds me of that saying that the greater hero is not the man who is afraid of nothing, but the but the man who is afraid of everything, and yet fights on regardless. That, that kind of idea. We first have evidence of this when he comes across a girl in trouble. The girl in question turns out to be the Earl's daughter, the Earl of this besieged, or soon-to-be-besieged city. Despite his fear, he steps in and saves her. She's not like a sort of weak girl. She, she is powerful and able to fight, but she was quite overwhelmed and outnumbered. So I like that. She's not just some spoiled little princess who doesn't know her way around a sword. Yeah, she's got some cajones or cajones. The first uh, few chapters, or at least until uh, Wreck and this Earl's daughter make it to this city, uh, it's all sort of about how they become closer and fall in love. So, uh, and something that David Gemmell did, and surprisingly did well, is quite often I have found in fantasy novels, it's sort of an either-or situation with regards to being able to write awesome battles and action and keep me on my toes like that, and then hop into the, the lovey-dovey stuff. Quite often... People are not good at both, but David Gemmell seems to be, because I honestly felt, after reading of their interactions and them speaking to one another, that they were deeply, deeply in love. So uh, I, I like that. It adds an extra little depth to the story. I suppose before we get to this city with Wreck, 
Uh, we'll have to mention one more character. In fact, the character is the legend of the title. The titular. <laughs> titular character. Legend. Uh, he, his name is Druss. Druss the legend. Imagine having that for, for a handle. Some big shoes to fill. He is famous pretty much everywhere for the fact of his many heroic acts, the fact that he's never lost a battle, and probably primarily for a battle at a... I didn't write down the name. At a... I think it was Skelm Pass. So, it was a very, very... From when it was described in the book, very reminiscent of the movie 300. It was a very, very small group defending a pass. Presumably, they were all going to die because the army opposing them was vastly outnumbering them. However, because of heroics of Druss and his companions, um, they defended the pass, and he has become famous for this fact. That was years ago, though. Druss is in his 60s now and is feeling it a little bit. He has, in recent years, sort of retreated from the world living in the mountains, and is just sort of biding his time before death. So that's not very nice. Death, who he has a couple of runs in with uh, over the course of this, and I mean actual death, the sort of uh, anthropomorphic personification of death, a la Terry Pratchett in the Discworld series, kind of a la that is how I was picturing it, but a little on the meaner side than that death. Anyways, uh, Death sort of points out to him that he has the choice between staying in this mountain retreat and slowly aging, falling apart, and kind of getting dementia. Uh, sounds like Alzheimer's he was describing, basically. Or he could go to this city, the city that was about to be besieged, and uh, die on his feet. Die like a man. So, obviously this toughest of tough men decides he wants to die with his trusty axe in hand and heads off. Very, very cool scenes involving him reaching the city and people sort of realizing who he was. Uh, sort of almost godlike in his stature and the stories told of him. So I, I like that. And then he's sort of helping to train this army that still exists within the city. This army that's for a lot of the part, kind of made up with people who've never been in a battle, farmers and whatnot, and he's got to whip them into shape. Not only that, he's got to whip the city into shape, because originally the first, I guess, three walls of this city were sort of uh, barren, no-man's land in order for the besieged to be on the walls and then have giant areas in which to fire their arrows at the besiegers. However, in the intervening many, many, many years, they had built houses in all these no-man's-land areas that people could hide behind. So they had to bust all those up, use the debris, or debris, if you prefer, to uh, block tunnels that had been made, all just sort of preparing for this 500,000 army strong to make their way to the city. So Druss did not like doing this, he quite often complained that he is a warrior and not a tactician. However, eventually he does not have to fulfill this role as highly, because Wreck 
is making his way to the city. Rec, who is a tactician, and not only that, has with him the 30. The 30, who are a group of monk knights, uh, sort of Templars, I think is a way you could look at it, who devote their life to the martial arts. And I don't mean martial arts, I mean the martial arts. Two different things. Uh, the art of war, and apparently their sort of uh, mission in life within this monkish monastery art of war place is that periodically, and I don't really get this, it was never kind of explained to my satisfaction why they do this, periodically these monks will pick a far-off war and then go off to fight in this war to die. Uh, I think maybe it had something to do with keeping the balance between good and evil, some such like that. Uh, that's as good as answer as any. So, the 30 of these folk are accompanying Wreck and the Earl's daughter to this city in order to help defend. They're much more tactician-y, although they're, they're not bad in battle either. They'll, they'll kick your fucking ass, let me tell you. Along the way, I'm going to leave off for now and go into work, but uh, along the way I just wanted to point out that Wreck and the Earl's daughter got married, which, if you know anything about, um, you know, royalty and what have you, if you marry an Earl's daughter and then the Earl dies, which uh, sadly he did, that makes you the new Earl. So poor bastard Wreck, who's scared of everything, reaches the city, city that is about to be besieged by 500,000 tribal warriors, and he is now the Earl. Poor, poor bastard. Alright folks, I'm at work. Uh, gonna go do in... I mean, gonna go in and do hmm, eight hours of work, and then I will be back and we'll sort of take off from when the besieging starts, because that's interesting, right? Yeah, right. Uh, that will leave one final thing to say, which is, of course... Oh... My job. Love you, tears. I'm a fool to do your dirty working, working, working. And we're back. We are back. We are back. We are back. We are back. 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 We are back. Back in action. Hello again. Well, well, etc. Uh, what was my plan? kind of jumping back in when we are under siege. So picture, if you will, 500,000 tribal northerners, barbarians, they didn't actually describe them totally 100% as barbarians, I suppose, but that's what I was picturing. And they are in front of the first wall of this six-walled city, the six-walled city that is being held by uh, 10,000 warriors, warriors that some of them, and not by far the majority of them, have seen battle, but a lot of them are just sort of farmers who have been training for the last, uh, I guess it was like month or so, under the, the tutelage of Dress the Legend. So, you know, their odds are not great. In fact, quite often in this book, they talk about how uh, there's no way in hell that they're going to win, and they try not to let that slip to everyone, but most people have that sort of underlying feeling of, well, we're going to, we're men, 
We're going to die on our feet protecting our lands, even if it means that we're all dead. You know, I, I like that kind of idea. I know. I, I'd be one of the guys who <laughs> friggin' left a long time ago. One of the guys who you think would have left a long time ago is a man by the name of Bowman. Bowman, B-O-W-M-A-N, or Bowman, is good with a bow and brought to this party a bunch of outlaws from the woods. Basically, when you boil it right down, totally, for the most part, ripping off Robin Hood. He, in this case, a bowman, he's sort of an outcast nobleman who's living in the woods with his band of merry men, and they're all good with bows, man. They're there for the party under the agreement that all past crimes will be forgiven, and that when the third of the sixth walls fall, they're going to leave. They're hightailing it. However, that doesn't actually happen. Some of them do, but the majority of them stay. So uh, kind of a little heartwarming there that these band of brothers working together forged through battle a friendship that uh, Bowman and his band could not leave behind, so uh, I like that idea. Something I wanted to mention about Wreck, and uh, Wreck is short for a longer name that I did not write down and do not recall, but he is a berserker. And they, I think they spelt it a little different in this than other ways I've seen it, but uh, berserker is how I am going to pronounce it, and the way in which it is described in the book is a berserker, someone who in the heat of battle can totally basically lose their shit and whereas most people fighting are gonna sort of mix uh, aggressive tactics with trying to protect themselves a berserker has no thoughts whatsoever of protecting himself and just goes all out 110% you might say in a sort of frothing at the mouth throwing around people like they are feathers just crazy, bug-nutty, losing his shit. So uh, I always like that, especially, and I can't actually think of a time, maybe it's never been done before, a berserker in the form of someone who is normally very kind of a glib, I think is a word you could use to describe him, and quite often not outwardly showing his fear, but we know through his inward thoughts that he is quite often fearful of things. So uh, that sort of combined almost a dual personality within this dude. I like it. Eventually, because he is the Earl of Bronze, which is the leader of these people, mm -hmm, he earns their respect through his heroic deeds, and somehow, someway, and this is some of the, the tinges of magic come in here, is that underneath the keep in which which these six walls are protecting within this walled city is a suit of armor that is made of bronze, but much, much stronger than bronze, as well as a sword that was encased in a crystal. So very, very sword in the stone, quite literally, actually. However, no one could get at the sword, but when Wreck reached for it, his hand passed right through the crystal, magically, if you will, which brings up an interesting thought of this book, I do believe, which is that, with, with this exception, 
there's not really any magic other than magic of the mind. And that comes in the form of the 30 who I mentioned this morning. They have the ability to talk to one another uh, telepathically as well as, I guess if you want to boil it down, astral project. I think that's how they describe it a little differently. And there's possibly slightly more to it than that, I suppose. But basically that's the two things they can do is... A telepathic talk and astral project, which allows them to sort of see what's going on on the battlefield, blah, blah, blah. Added to those two things are the fact that they can go into others' minds and sort of peer around a little bit, as well as kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of see into the future. And I like what they did here, and it sort of saves them from the... Uh, It's almost like a trap that if if you read a book that has people who can see into the future and they foretell doom and then it doesn't happen, what do you say to that? You just basically fucked up, (laughs) is how I would look at it. You are the writer and you fucked up doing that. However, they explain it right off the bat, that sort of idea of future possibilities and anything can happen to change said future that they may see. So, for example, they can see the death of... They could see the death of someone in this battle. But that is only one of a million possibilities. The likelihood of said death has varying degrees, and sometimes it is all but inevitable, but sometimes uh, it's sort of more ethereal in their predictions. So uh, I like that. you got to keep it sort of flowy. So you never back yourself into a corner of saying, yep, this is going to happen, and I foretell it. Uh, I should wrap this up with saying, what? The battle sequences in this are amazing. I won't go into too much detail. I hope you, uh, this is always my hope on a book Wednesday, that you read along with me, or if not with me, later from me. Like, starting now. Nah. Because these are very, very good books. Uh, one sort of final things I wanted to say, and maybe I won't get in it too, too much so as not to spoil things, but uh, within these books are quite a number of deaths. And I don't just mean deaths of random soldiers, although that does happen, of course, but uh, of main characters. Characters who you do not think will die within this book will die within this book. And uh, David Gemmel author of this book, has done a very, very good job in making us care for these characters and then um, killing them. And there was a lot of times where it was incredibly sad, and I may have, despite being a manly, manly man with a flowing and bushy mustache, uh, may have shed a tear or two. So, so I wanted to point that out. We're going from super, super violent action heads chopped off, uh, people getting gangrene and basically melting away with their gangrenousness, to some magic, to sadness, to happiness, to the camaraderie of folks fighting side by side and joshing around a little bit. Uh, Really, it has everything you want in a fantasy novel. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No dragons. No dragons. Folks, if you are going to make a fantasy novel, throw in at least one goddamn dragon, please. God, it's ridiculous. 
other than the lack of a dragon, uh, easy, easy, 5 out of 5. I think I already gave my rating out this morning, but it bears saying again because these are good. On the note of this saga of books, I do believe, potentially, it is like three, six, like nine books. Uh, I think how David Gemmell did it was breaking them up into three separate sagas, possibly. I have all of them, um, if they are as good as this one. And so far, the second one is very, very good. Uh, I'll bring them back as I read them. Hmm. Something interesting, which I know I mentioned this morning, is that book two takes place 100 years after the first book, and I think, kind of think, that that is how these books are going to happen. Like, um, it's not going to be the same story told in two books, it's separate stories, which potentially is a good idea for the reason that you can put down and pick up these books sort of willy-nilly. Like, so far, in book two, if I had not have read book one, there's not really anything that I would greatly be missing and not being able to follow along in the story. There's a few odds and ends, I suppose, but uh, not a great amount. I imagine, as this was, if not David Gemmell's first novel written, one of his very first, doing it that way has to probably make it a little easier in that uh, when you have a saga of nine books to keep track what has happened in the books before, it's got to be goddamn difficult. That's one of the things I always sort of blows my mind of people who write books, is how do they keep track with what happened in previous books? Uh, I suppose if you're not writing trilogies and anthologies and what have you, you don't have to worry about that, but uh, some of my favorite books are those, so I really got to tip my hat to folks who do that. Folks, speaking of folks, I will say that I enjoyed this book about Wednesday, and that rhymes, and you know it rhymes. That will, of course, leave one final thing to say, which is, of course, again, mm -hmm. it is nice to be nice to the nice. Thank you for listening. We here in the Liberal Cube would love to hear from you. If for any reason you would like to contact us, you can do so via the email address mailwood.jordan at gmail.com And now I have a theory. I've got a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. No, something isn't right there. I've got a theory. The best is yet to come and babe, won't it be fine? You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway Wait till our lips have met Wait till you see that sunshine day You ain't seen nothing yet The best is yet to come and be Won't it be fine? The best is yet to come, come the day you're mine Live long and prosper.